And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So I'm curious, I have a very odd experience in my own upbringing that I expect someone here at least tangentially shares, but maybe not a whole lot of us. So I'm curious, how many people here were, grew up at some point believing that Mickey Mouse's friend Goofy swore like a sailor? First time the idea ever occurred to me was in first grade. I was in one of my class, and I was in class, and one of my classmates shouted out in frustration, I can't do this math worksheet, oh my gosh! And Miss Skipworth immediately forgot everything she'd been trying to teach us about sums and figures, and immediately moved into a conversation about ethics and blasphemy, and she said, we don't say that word in this class. When people say gosh, what they really mean is God, and saying, oh my God, like that is taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't think I'd ever heard it put quite that way before. But as you can imagine, it raised all kinds of questions. Like, for instance, how did Goofy get away with saying gosh over and over in a show that was meant for children? I don't think I ever talked to my pastor about this. I don't. (laughs) And by the way, can I just put in a public service announcement here? Whenever you hear something that doesn't check out or that you have curiosity about, Feel free to ask your pastor about it. There's nothing we love more. Sometimes we'll confirm. Sometimes we'll we'll point in a different direction. But there's nothing more that we would love to do than actually talk about the things of God. So never think that a question is too small or too big or too thorny for your pastor. Don't think you're troubling us. You're probably making our day, okay? I didn't do that. Never reached out to my pastor to to check out Miss Skipworth's ethics, but the instinct has stuck with me ever since. Jennifer went to the same school, had many of the same teachers I did, so she has that same impulse in her own mind. So to this day, in the Pract household, our kids know that we say, oh my word, or oh my pants, for some reason that became one of our habits, or oh my kittens, I don't know how that one quite got in there. Whenever we want to express frustration or exclamation or uh, anger or disbelief, it's like the Proverbs say, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Miss Skipworth has no idea what a lasting impact she had and how funny she makes me talk sometimes. I don't know how you feel about Goofy's favorite word, but I suspect some of you have interpreted the third commandment a little bit differently over the course of your life. Maybe lived it out a little bit differently than Miss Skipworth did. And I expect there are a few, very few of us here 
who would go so far as the rest of Exodus 27. I bet there's no one here today who would say, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who uses the word gosh. I wonder what that means about us. Does that mean that uh, we are compromisers? Does that mean that we take our faith less seriously or the Ten Commandments less seriously than the first hearers of the Bible? I hope not. I can't imagine telling someone, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I try not to take it too seriously. It doesn't even make sense to me. When we say that we believe in God, when we say we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, that he came, he died, he rose for us, that he calls us into a new life, if that means anything, it's got to mean everything. And it has to mean that God is the point of everything. And so last week we said that we want to take the Ten Commandments seriously, not treat them as if they are something old and out of date antiquated to be left behind or just left on stone tablets somewhere. And, but if we're going to take them seriously, it means that we have to read them and see them the way we see everything, which is to say through the lens of God and of God's commandment in Jesus Christ. It says the greatest commandments are love God and love others. Amen. And the witness of Jesus teaches us how to see and how to read Everything. And this morning, as we take a look at the first three commandments, one of the things we want to highlight is that they are an especially strong reminder to us that everything is about God. And if that sounds obvious to you, well, of course, that's what we believe. The first thing I want to do is highlight for us how radical a statement that was in the era, in the world, into which God spoke the Ten Commandments. How far removed we are with some of our assumptions from the world of the Hebrew people who sat there at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard for the first time when Moses read aloud, saying, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Today, we know that as the first commandment, but for the Hebrew people, that was a revelation See, today, we take for granted that everything should be devoted to one thing, one goal, or another. Even most of the atheists in the world around us today kind of take it for granted. They talk this way. They usually talk as if uh, they, they might drop off the supernatural or the spiritual terms, but even they tend to talk about having mission statements or focus or a singular purpose most of us take for granted that there has to be some point to everything. But that's not the ancient world. The ancient world, the one that the Israelites lived in, did not have in its mind a concept that you live your life in a single-minded devotion to some cause, some purpose, some higher power, or even to oneself. Instead, it, the, the ancient world of the Israelites was more of a hedge your bets kind of world. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, one way of worship, or one God. Instead, the ancients lived in the assumption that the world is just full of powers, all kinds of powers that are beyond our control. And the way you live your life is to, to go about it trying to, um, to, to hedge your bets, to get help from any power that can help you, and also try not to tick off any power that wouldn't help you because you don't want that power arrayed against you. The goal was to show proper respect to everything and to anything 
to anything that could help you or anything that could hurt you, whether that was the sun god or the rain god or the tribal chieftain who claimed to be a god. That was the world that the the Israelites lived in. And the Israelites knew firsthand that that kind of approach ultimately led to slavery. The Pharaoh in Egypt was supposed to be one of many gods. And though the Israelites never worshiped him for 400 years, they felt they had no choice but to defer to his might and to his power. Don't tick off the power that calls himself a god. Show him the proper respect. Moses came to lead them into freedom. This has been going on so long that we are told the people of Israel had almost forgotten entirely about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It had begun by just treating him as one of many powers and then with almost forgetting him entirely. So there at Mount Sinai, God has to come to them and offer a revelation as his first commandment. He says, never forget that I am not just one of the powers in this world. I am greater than all of them. And that's radical in their day and time. And what might be a little bit radical for us today is realizing that the first commandment does not say the Lord is the only God. And it says you shall have no other gods before me which sounds kind of like what we read in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 93 or Psalm 85, where the psalmist Asaph says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgments among the gods, which probably sounds a little odd to our ears. The Ten Commandments, what we just heard, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is the first time that God revealed his supremacy amongst all the other powers of this world. But it would take centuries for the Israelites to realize, that not only, to realize the whole truth. That not only is God greater than all the powers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God we worship today, this God is the only power that is even worthy of the name God. And today we say that the Israelites were the world's first monotheists, first people to believe in one God. But at Sinai, they only got a glimpse of that bigger picture. All they knew for sure was that their God was the greatest. God wasn't yet saying only. He just called himself greatest. Baby steps toward the full truth. And I, I wonder what it would be like if your own relationship with God could proceed by similar sorts of baby steps. By putting him first. You don't have to ignore the other powers that demand our allegiance. Politics, money, maybe your esteem among your neighbors. But you would have to put them in their place. You would have to say God first and none of this other stuff before God. If you did that, you might have to look at your calendar and how you spend your time and say, okay, first things first. How am I gonna honor God with this? And you get to your budget. And you'd have to say, okay, first things first. How will I honor God with this? If you took that baby step, not of denying all the powers of this world, but simply 
putting them in their place. (laughs) Putting first things first. I wonder if then you just might find that some of the things you have held on to don't seem nearly as powerful as they used to. And when we start by putting God first, we soon discover God's only. In the end, we come to understand what it means to live as if everything and the only things that really matter come from God. Sometimes it takes baby steps. If we put God first, God becomes our only. That sounds radical to you. I I suppose that it is. No doubt it is in the world around us. But uh, what was even more radical for the Israelites was what came after Commandments two and three. The second commandment, you shall not have any graven images. It went through a similar progression. It started out not as a ban on idols, but as just a ban on sculpture altogether. It wasn't just that the Israelites didn't have uh, sculptures that they worshiped. They just didn't have sculpture at all. And then it seems over time, the Israelites took that even further. For instance, when you read your Bible, one of the things that you probably won't notice unless someone points out to you is that there's no mention of painting anywhere in the Bible. Just wasn't a part of their culture. Started with we won't sculpt anything that might become a substitute for God. And then it became a practice that we won't put the image of the created world anywhere, not even with paint. Then we come to the third commandment, Miss Skipworth's favorite. Originally, it meant that you don't break any vow made in God's name. That any vow you make in God's name is an unbreakable vow means that once you say you're going to do something and you swear it, take an oath in God's name, you have to be punished if you break that, even if you had a really good reason. It's a way of saying there's no way out of this one. And as you know, many of you over time, that kind of reverence for God's name began to go even further. So it wasn't just about vows and promises that are made, but eventually came to the point where to this day in, the, in Jewish worship traditions, Worshippers won't say the name revealed on Mount Sinai aloud. They won't even write it down in full. That's what happens when you put God first. Eventually, you start to see God in everything. The way you talk, the way you write, the way you, well. But there's a paradox in that. The more and the more we radically try to take God seriously, and to see God in everything, the more and more we inevitably come to see our own radical failures. We discover all the ways that we aren't yet living up to our best vision of who we should be and who we could be. And the more and more God's people tried to live up to their own law, the more they realized that they broke it. And I bet you've been there too. I bet you've been at the point where you tried to replace one diet by putting in an even stricter one. I'm going to throw all the junk food out of the house. I'm going to make everything about this. I bet some of us tried to fix our budget by deciding we'll never buy anything fun again. Everything is relentlessly on mission, on point, on purpose. I bet you've tried to heal some relationships 
by instituting some radical rules. And if you've ever tried to do that, then I expect you have found that the most radical rules cannot heal your relationship with all the powers that are around us. Maybe that was all just baby steps to discovering that Jesus is the one who offers the right relationship with God, and he's the only one who can. It's Jesus, not the rules, who restores our relationship to God. With the only God who matters. And that's why last week we said, and it's still true today as it turns out, and it'll always be true, that Jesus is the one who both fulfills the law and the one who gives us a right relationship with God. It's because of Jesus that we are able to see the relationship that God wants with us right there in all three of these first commandments. It's because of Jesus that we know that there is one God. But we also know, because of Jesus, that that one God is a trinity, a three-in-one, a relationship. Trinity and unity and unity and trinity, as the old creed says. Jesus invites us to see the singular point of everything and the relationship. And that's why, when I, back when I was in seminary, they taught me that God has many titles, but only two names. The first name is the one that was given on Mount Sinai. The one that in the Hebrew faith and the Jewish faith today is never spoken aloud and that we as Christians need not fear but ought to be respectful of. And then the second name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The relationship that we are called into to participate in, that relationship is the singular focus, the point of everything. And it's because of Jesus that not only do we see the one God as the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's because of Jesus that we also are not afraid these days to depict God's creation or even God's own presence. I mean, if you've ever seen the pictures of the Sistine Chapel or been there yourself, you know that throughout Christian tradition, we've not been afraid not just to paint the created world, but even to paint God in various forms. And here's the thing, when we do that, we never think that we've gotten it right. But we are able to depict God in sculpture, and depict God's creation in sculpture or in art or in all these different ways because when Jesus came as God in our own likeness, the word made flesh, he set us free to celebrate all the ways that creation and creativity can point to God. And as I said, none of the, our depictions of God are right. We never accurately paint him. We can't even accurately paint Jesus, who does have defined physical features, who is in human flesh. But unfortunately, 2,000 years ago, there was no one walking around with a photograph to make sure that we would get his image right for all of time afterwards. So for 2,000 years, for a long time to come, Christian artists have done their best to capture something true, to remind us that this relationship God wants with us is not just abstract, intangible, in our heads. 
because God has entered into the creation, has not been afraid to be seen. And every time we draw or we paint or we sculpt what is and what could be, we are pointing toward the day when that relationship is restored and earth and heaven become one again. Jesus changes how we see that second commandment. And it's because of Jesus that our standards for which words should be said and which ones should not do not boil down to an etymology. Oh, well, when you say this, what you really mean is that and all those things. And our standard for which words are worth saying and are appropriate doesn't come down to grammar, which is hard for me to say. English major raised by an editor here. But as Christians and because of Jesus Christ, none of that is our standard for what is good words and which words are not. Instead, our highest standard is whether our words make us sound, is not whether they make us sound intelligent or respectable or learned. Instead, our standard is whether our words are loving and whether they are true. Jesus said it himself uh, on the Sermon uh, on the Mount. He said, you have heard it said, do not break an oath. You have heard it said, do not break your word when you swear an oath. But I say to you, do not swear an oath at all. Jesus said, don't have special words called oaths that you use when you want to tell the truth and then other words you use when you want to lie. (laughs) Instead, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no for anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Because of Jesus, because of the witness he's given us, and because he has promised us forgiveness, we can speak the truth. We can speak the truth without, faith, without fear. We can speak the truth about our own encounters with God, gifts and strengths and wonder. And we can speak the truth about our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own uncertainties, because we know that none of our words get the last word. We don't need special words for when we want to tell the truth and when we want to lie. We just say yes or no. This is what I know. This is what I don't. And we let Jesus have the last word. Jesus is the one who makes all the difference. And not by calling us to take the Ten Commandments less seriously, but there's no way around. Jesus calls us to take the Ten Commandments more seriously because it can't any longer be about simply doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. It's got to be about our heart. Jesus invites us to live as if our hearts matter. And yeah, sometimes we will do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and you know what? Sometimes that's the baby step we need. (laughs) But that's never the point. The point is that God wants a relationship with us. A relationship in which we know God fully and we are not afraid of being known. Because of course, that's how it was in the beginning. 
we often forget that long before we were commanded never to make an image of God, God made his own image and put it in the world, breathed into it and gave it life. At least I'm pretty sure that's how Genesis 1 puts it. If you remember, it says, so God created humanity in his own image and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I suppose someone might argue about whether or not Mrs. Skipworth took the Ten Commandments too seriously. But whether you agree with her or not, I hope you agree with me that I'm glad for how seriously God takes us. How patiently God woos us from baby step to baby step. For how creatively God made us in his own image and how lovingly he still calls our name for the sake of the relationship he wants. And the more we fix our minds on that, the more we'll mean it. Every time we say, oh my God, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.